The president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So states the United States Constitution, Article 2, Section 4, about the power the U.S. Senate is due to invoke next week when it is slated to try former President Trump for inciting a riot on the U.S. Capitol January 6th. But the Constitution says very little about how impeachment trials should actually be conducted, nor does it address what is arguably a crucial threshold question. Is it permissible to try an ex-president like Trump who has already been removed? While he has nothing but contempt for Trump's actions in the run-up to January 6th, Philip Bobbitt, a professor of law at Columbia University, argues that the answer to that question is no, and that trying an ex-president like Trump could set a dangerous precedent. While sharing Bobbitt's views on Trump's conduct, Steve Vladek, a law professor at the University of Texas, believes the answer, both from the words of the Constitution itself and historical precedent, is yes. As the president scrambles to find a new legal team and the House managers hone their arguments that might persuade skeptical Republican senators, we'll talk to both Bobbitt and Vladek on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isgoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So before we get to the really interesting uh constitutional question of trying an ex-office holder like Donald Trump, uh, we got to start out by uh, the delicious news over the weekend that Trump's entire legal team, just one week away from trial, quit or resigned or was pushed out because of a difference in strategy with the president. Um the lawyers, uh, uh, one of whom who had been recruited by Lindsey Graham, uh, wanted to argue that the entire proceeding is unconstitutional and therefore should not go forward. But Trump wanted to insist that they bring up his completely groundless claims of election fraud and that somehow he believes this trial is going to vindicate uh, these bogus claims. Uh, the lawyers, knowing full well that making uh, completely baseless arguments in a legal proceeding could be grounds for bar investigations of their conduct, resigned and threw in the towel. Well, Trump has a history of um, either lawyers quitting on him or having a hard time actually retaining lawyers in the first place, doesn't he? Uh, yes. I mean, back in 2017, during the Mueller investigation, I wrote a story for Yahoo about all the major Washington law firms who Trump had reached out to turned him down. 
about uh, representing him. Uh, they had multiple concerns, uh, probably first and foremost, as to whether he would ever actually pay them. He has a long history of stiffing uh, contractors and many others who work for him. And also the question of whether the client could be controlled and would actually take uh, their advice. And here we have a classic example of uh, the lawyers telling him, no, Mr. Ex-president, please don't don't go down that road. And uh, Trump, living off in his own uh, little world of fantasy, uh, insisting that uh, that's what exactly what he wants them to do. But it it is also the case that he has a a, a long sordid history of finding lawyers who will do his bidding, even if they include outrageous, baseless allegations and uh, insane conspiracy theories. The problem this time is that the main lawyer who's been willing to push the envelope in that uh, in that way is Rudy Giuliani, uh, who is a fact witness in this case and therefore cannot act as his attorney. Who was a friggin' co-conspirator, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, speaking at the same rally where Trump incited the mob saying, you know, this is trial by combat. Yeah. Right. And, and of course, also his um, former counsel, uh, Sidney Powell, who uh, – is busy defending herself against uh, from from her fraudulent big kraken <laughs> claims. <laughs> yes. Release the kraken! Yeah, uh, release the, the kraken! <laughs> it's so interesting that like um, these kind of parallel universes, dual tracks. And on the one hand, you know, we're about to have this very interesting conversation with these two constitutional scholars. It's very high minded. Uh, question about uh, about the Constitution and about um, Senate process. Uh, but Be forewarned, all... skullduggery listeners. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but but at the end of the day, it, you're it, going it back all... to law school here on skullduggery. It, yeah. it is all rooted in uh, just <laughs> the most outrageous uh, base uh, conduct. Um, of uh, of the president of the United States, so yeah, there you yeah. go. And just to add to that, former president you know, of the United States, the I former say. president of the United States. I, I gotta say, uh, you know, you can't let this one slide. Uh, the uh, reports uh, that Trump raised two hundred and fifty five million dollars for his political committee since the election. Now, I am, like many reporters, are on the email lists uh, for the fundraising pitches uh, for this committee, and I was getting them every day from the Trump folks. Uh, here's one uh, I pulled up uh, from my iPhone, December 10th, uh, 2020. This may be the, friends, this may be the most important email I ever send you. I want to provide an update on our ongoing efforts to expose the tremendous voting irregularities that took place during the ridiculously long November 3rd election. As president, I have no higher duty than to defend the laws of the Constitution. So the whole wording of that and many of these other emails clearly implied that the money was going for the legal case the president was trying to make uh, about election fraud to overturn the election. In fact, very little, if any, has gone for that purpose. The president was just, you know, standard grifter that he is, raising money that he can use for political activities under the guise of suggesting that it was some sort of legal defense fund to represent him uh, in these uh, in these bogus lawsuits. 
Well, I guess he'll be able to use those funds to pay his new lawyers and his um, impeachment trial. Yeah, so yeah, if that might be around, uh, with, sure. within the within the rules. Um, yeah, that could. But I mean, look, the yeah, you know, the fine print in these emails was always that it could be used for other purposes, for the president's political purposes, and that's what he was doing. So I really doubt uh, in this anticipated one week trial uh, that Trump will uh, run up two hundred fifty five million dollars in legal bills. Um, but he may, in the months and years to come, as all the investigations of him uh, accelerate, both in New York, in Georgia, most likely elsewhere. So um, yeah, he may, he may need those funds after all for yeah. legal purposes. Yeah. Well, this is going to be a great uh, conversation and debate uh, between um, Philip Bobbitt and, and Steve Laddick. Uh, and I, I would say for our listeners uh, that you mentioned the, the impeachment trial coming up next week, I think it'll be really a preview of right. uh, some of the arguments that uh, that you'll hear, uh, you know, from Jamie Raskin, the chief house manager, um, who will be the the lead prosecutor in the in the case, um, and who's been a uh, a many-time guest on Skullduggery, and uh, whoever ends up defending um, Donald Trump right. uh, in that trial. So. We, will, uh, we will see. But before uh, we do that, I'm going to uh, uh, do a little C-SPAN for us. Um, in this discussion, you will hear references to Walter Nixon, a former federal judge from Mississippi. Uh, judge Nixon was impeached by the House In 1989, convicted by the Senate, he appealed his conviction to the United States Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, in a unanimous ruling, chose not to take up the case, concluding that uh, impeachments were, as the Constitution says, the sole power of impeachment is the United States Senate, and the courts don't have a role to play. And with that, let's get to it. We are now joined to talk about impeachment and the Constitution by two distinguished law professors, Philip Bobbitt, a professor of law at Columbia University, and Steve Vladek at the University of Texas. Professors Bobbitt and Vladek, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So... This is a big issue right now. We are on the eve of the impeachment trial of former President Trump. Uh, The Senate has just voted last week uh, about whether it's even constitutional to try a former president. 45 uh, Republican senators voted no, which wasn't a majority, but it does make it seem with that many Republicans on record saying the whole thing is unconstitutional, it's going to be exceedingly difficult for uh, the House managers to get their 67 uh, votes that they would need for conviction. So let's, we want to take this opportunity to delve into the question of just what the Constitution says about impeachment and what we can infer from the text about this critical question of uh, trying somebody who has already been removed from office. So I thought we'd just start out with what does the Constitution say? And when you actually look at it, um, 
it doesn't say very much at all. Professor Bobbitt, why don't you start off by telling us what the words say? Sure. There are really, I think, two main passages. Impeachment's mentioned in a couple of places, but the first one sets out the uh, grounds for impeachment and uh, who can be impeached. That's in Article 2, Section 4, and I'll just read from the text. The president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So that sets that sets forth who can be impeached and convicted and on what basis. And it says nothing about disqualifying somebody from running from off for office again. No, that's in a second passage that puts a limitation on the penalties for impeachment. That's in Clause 7. And it says, judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. So once a person is removed and removal follows instantly upon conviction, even a sitting president then becomes a former president and he is subject to uh, trial, prosecution for criminal violations. So you take from that, you take from that, that the Senate cannot have a trial purely for disqualification from office if the office holder has already departed. Um, now, clearly the words are not explicit on that point. So tell us how you uh, reach that conclusion before we turn to yeah. Professor Vladek to tell us why he thinks you're wrong. I guess I don't think the words are so vague. Uh, maybe if we were just reading this uh, and we do nothing about the formation of the Constitution, how the text is structured, what its history is, uh, perhaps they might be uh, confusing because you have these different parts of the uh, text all discussing impeachment. But perhaps the most fundamental principle of the Constitution, the thing that makes uh, the American experiment so important in constitutional history, is that it puts the state under law. It, the federal government is given enumerated powers, and in some cases, not all cases, the means to carry out those powers are also specified. Now, in this case, the power is a power over the president, vice president, and all civil officers. It doesn't include military officers. It doesn't include private citizens. It doesn't include former uh, civil officers. It says quite explicitly the president, vice president, and all civil officers are subject to impeachment and conviction. The passage about removal and disqualification is a means. In fact, it is a limitation on that means. And it very carefully spells out what you can do when you convict someone. You remove them. You can, if you wish, disqualify them. But that's it. And then it also adds, but don't forget, they're still subject to the processes of criminal law. I guess my bottom line is, for many people, and I don't know if Steve feels this way or not, for many people, the question has become, is there a plausible case to be made 
for trying someone who is no longer in office. And if there is, because of the egregious behavior of the former president, why can't we rely on that? Whereas my view is that would do infinitely more damage than Trump ever did, because you are defying what is to me a very clear commandment. And you're also edging quite close to something else, which is a prohibition against bills of attainder. Bills of attainder, as you all know, levy penalties against private parties without the due process of jury trials. Okay, uh, Professor Bobbitt, you you laid out a whole lot of things there, which Steve can address. But I, let's bring Steve in, and I, I take it for you know textual reasons, uh, presidential reasons, and common sense reasons. You believe that a former president can be uh, impeached, tried, convicted, removed, disqualified. So lay out your case. Well, so I, mean, I think it's worth starting with, with one important distinction, which is, yes, I believe all of that. But in one respect, this isn't that case. Um, Trump was impeached while he was still president. And I, I assume Philip agrees that at least the impeachment was appropriate since the House voted the article of impeachment against the president while he was the president. So, you know, yes, my view, Daniel, does go further. But here we have an officer who was, in fact, impeached while he was holding the office. Um, and so in at least that respect, this isn't that extreme case. But let's go to the extreme case. I mean, I think that the key to me is language Philip talked about. It's the language in Article 1, Section 3, Clause 7 about the power to disqualify the individual from holding office in the future. What would that power mean? What would that, why would that be there if the relevant officer could simply resign as the last senator votes to convict him um, and thereby avoid right the, the, the penalty of disqualification? I mean, by, by the logic that you have to still be holding the office at the time you're convicted, it would become just entirely easy and um, inevitable that officers who, once they become certain that they're going to be convicted by the Senate, they'll all just resign because at that point, there's nothing left for the Senate to do. I, I think the founders wouldn't have written a disqualification power that could be so easily and completely um, avoided and mooted. Um, Steve, um, the comeback to what you just said is a case that fits entirely with the scenario you just outlined. Richard Nixon was on the verge of being impeached in 1974. And famously, uh, Republican senators led by Barry Goldwater and you, Scott, went up to the White House, told Nixon this, he resigned. And in spite of all the massive evidence of Nixon's crimes and culpability, nobody talked about going through with impeachment and trying him in the Senate to disqualify him from office. It never came up. There's no nothing in the public record su suggesting that anybody even contemplated that. So doesn't that weigh against the idea that it's okay from a constitutional perspective to proceed uh, in a case where the president is no longer in office? So, you know, Michael, it's certainly a thumb on the scale. And, and you know, Philip makes, I think, a lot of um, uh, concise and intelligent use of that example in his lawfare post from January 27th, which I'd encourage folks to read. Here's my problem. Um, what the Nixon, you know, in the Nixon case, no one expected Nixon to ever appear in public life again. 
um, right? That, you know, everyone understood that Nixon's resignation was the end of his career. Um, he made no noises about how he was going to be a candidate for office in the future, right? And so there, just, there was no reason why anyone would have thought that disqualification was something we ought to be thinking about. Michael, I should also point out, I mean, disqualification has not been automatic, even in the cases where I think Philip and I both agree the Constitution was properly followed, um, where you've had eight federal judges in American history who have been convicted by the Senate. Only three of them were disqualified. So I guess I just, yes, the, the House and the Senate have not historically seen any reason to disqualify most of the officers either threatened with or successfully impeached. But one, there are two counterexamples, the, the Blount and Belknap cases, which I imagine we'll, we'll spend a few minutes talking about. And two, that could just as well be for political reasons, that it's just pointless to disqualify a broken man like President Nixon from running for an office he's never going to seek again um, versus a context of Donald Trump who has made no bones about the possibilities that he might again seek the Republican nomination in 2024 and who, you know, doesn't accept the wrongness of his conduct in the first place. All true, although I'm not sure that's a constitutional argument, um, but. Um, no, no, I, I'm not saying that. No, but, but Michael, just to be clear, because I think I, I just want to I want to be as crystal clear as possible about where I think the differences are between Philip and myself. The, the point is just that. Examples throughout American history of the House and Senate either not pursuing or not completing impeachment and removal proceedings because the officer had resigned, usually in disgrace, I think are relevant to the moral and historical analysis. I don't think they prove anything about the Constitution actually precluding the House and Senate from proceeding, especially given that we know of at least two examples where the House and Senate did proceed against former officers. Well, I want to I want to make uh, I want to touch on three points uh, before we get to to Nixon. The first is something I call the the McConnell move uh, that uh, former Judge Mike McConnell, now a professor out of Stanford, makes, and that Steve also uh, made. The idea is that the Senate has the power, the sole power, to try impeachments. Trump was a civil officer when he was impeached. Therefore, the Senate can try uh, Trump because he was at that time, when the House voted, a civil officer. And the problem with that is that it runs right into the text. The text says the civil officer shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of. The Senate has no power to try and convict a non-civil officer. Now, Steve makes some other very powerful points, and let me just touch on two of them. One of them is this illogical idea, and I've seen it in much of the press on this and on this letter that's, I don't know, 150 people signed or something like that. And it's interesting to me that it runs up against your intuition that that isn't really a constitutional point. If you say, surely the framers would have not wanted someone to skate away free by resigning at the last minute. That would be illogical. That assumes that the framers' purpose is to inflict a punishment. That's why the punishment is there. And to serve that objective, it would be illogical to allow its easy evasion. But the purpose of the punishment is not the power accorded to Congress. The punishment serves the power, not the other way around. You don't infer a larger power 
just so you can effectuate the punishment. One might say, similarly, it's illogical to let states have uh, two senators when their populations are so much smaller than larger states. You can't assume a purpose that the framers and ratifiers themselves did not have by saying, if I were doing it, well, I'd certainly close that loophole. The last point I'll make is Nixon, and Steve is quite right about this, the precedents in non-court decisions are difficult. When the president makes a decision and the Congress makes a decision, they don't typically lay out a case for why they have decided this way. And we give them more latitude to bring in political concerns, uh, to, to act for reasons that are really not even germane to the particular decision they're making when they're trading votes for something else. Nevertheless, there are precedents, and we'll want to discuss them later. And the most powerful precedent is always the most recent and the ones whose facts most fit the current case you're trying to decide. And on that, Nixon is quite, quite close. It isn't just that we thought we'd seen the back of Nixon, something that people had thought several times in Nixon's career. It isn't just that he'd served two terms that couldn't run again for president because he could have been appointed to some other job. It's that Washington was furious. <laughs> there were people who'd felt they had been lied to, that, that they had taken testimony from people who were ordered to lie to them, and that it simply didn't occur to them. No one said, no one made Steve's point. Oh, well, hell, he'll never come back. Oh, he's disgraced himself. Oh, he couldn't possibly think of running again, although he probably did. No one made that point. It's the dog that didn't bark in Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Steve, do you want to respond to that? And then I have a question for, for both of you. Sure. I mean, just really briefly, I, I just I think there are two different debates that Philip and I are having, at least thus far, right? The first is what to make of the historical precedents, including Nixon. And the second is how to parse the text itself. Um, and, you know, I, I think we're, we're not going to convince each other, I suspect, on either. But sort of starting with the starting with the historical debates, I, mean, I do think it's relevant in this respect um, that we do have these two examples where the House and the Senate both proceeded against former officers um, and where even though neither resulted in a conviction, right, in both chambers, the debate about whether you could proceed against a former officer was resolved in favor of the affirmative. But but turning back to the sort of the text of the Constitution, I mean, you know, I, I would encourage folks, Brian Call who's at Michigan State, um, wrote really what is, I think, the definitive article and the definitive academic treatment of what he calls, or what, what many people call, so-called late impeachments um, in the Texas Review of Law and Politics back in 2001. And what Brian points out is actually late impeachments were not just very common to the English experience at the time the Constitution was written. In some jurisdictions, that was the only way you could impeach an officer was after they were out of office. Um, and so the notion that we sort of rejected that model implicitly, I think is just another, you know, it's, it's another hurdle that proponents of, of the notion that these are unconstitutional have to overcome. Now, one last but, sort but of caveat. The reason, Steve, the reason it's not a punishment is because the Constitution explicitly calls for, you know, the civil courts to uh, conduct such an exercise if needed, to try somebody and convict them and then face all the penalties of the law. But Michael, none, with, with one exception, there's no criminal statute I'm aware of except, I believe, the federal insurrection statute, ironically enough, for which a conviction itself renders you ineligible to hold federal office in the future. And this is why, again, you know, I go back to the disqualification point that 
the notion, the, the remedy of disqualifying an officer from holding future office is for all intents and purposes, one that is exclusively a result of a successful conviction by the Senate and then a successful follow-on vote by the Senate to disqualify. And so, you know, maybe we just don't think that remedy is ever going to be effectively available. I just, you know, Philip and I, I think, have some divergences in how we teach constitutional interpretation. You know, I'm, I'm a big adherent that we don't generally assume provisions are teethless. Um, right. And especially when it comes to impeachment, where I mean, let's be clear the the founders did not exactly cover all the bases when the Constitution speaks to impeachment. One of my favorite examples with my first year con law class is, you know, a, a, a plain text reading of the Constitution would have the vice president preside over his or her own impeachment trial. Um, we're, we're assuming the text answers all questions here. And I think this is a context where it doesn't and where the historical practice both before the founding and since you know, put much more weight on the side of pro than anti. The, the the last thing I'll say, though, and this is where I think Philip and I probably agree, is, you know, Philip and I and other constitutional scholars can debate this until we're blue in the face. Um, this is ultimately the Senate's call. And so, you know, if there are 34 or more senators who are willing to acquit Trump for no other reason than the fact that he's out of office, you know, I can say I think that's not an appropriate ground for conviction, but it's not an inappropriate exercise of their power. Well, let, let me pick up on that because I wanted to ask you both a, a practical question because a, a, as fascinating a constitutional debate as this is, there are a couple of ways in which it is sort of moot. One is what you just mentioned, what Isakoff mentioned, which is you're, you're not likely to get 17 Republicans to convict in this case. But the other one, um, and I want to start with Philip on this, is um, let's say just for you know just for argument's sake that the Democrats did have enough votes in the Senate to convict, and 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 then President Trump's lawyers uh, decided to litigate this, as I guess they would. The question is, um, is this something that the Supreme Court would actually weigh in on? Uh, because there is another Supreme Court case involving a different Nixon, right? Nixon versus the United States. Uh, in which I think it was Chief Justice Rehnquist who said that questions arising out of an impeachment are non-justiciable uh, and that basically the Constitution leaves uh, questions about impeachment to the political branches and in particular the Senate. Um, so how do you answer that question, Philip? And then, um, Steve, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'll be happy to answer that if you promise me you'll let me answer Steve's remark about the framers and their intentions later. One hundred percent. Granted, you're quite you're quite right. Uh, Judge Nixon's case, it seems to me, is entirely right. It's a very powerful precedent. Uh, I don't think impeachment is uh, within the uh, jurisdiction of the courts. Not because it's a political question. Uh, not be, not because it's imprudent to do so, or we don't want the court second guessing the other branches of government. It simply isn't within the judicial power. Full stop. However, if we go down this path, which I think is most unlikely, as I think we all probably anticipate, if you go down this path and you start levying punishments against private persons, whether they were former officers or not, you will run right into the Bill of Attainder problem. And that is quite justiciable. And I can easily see a court saying that they would take this up, not as a matter of impeachment and removal, because you can't, you can't remove the former officer. But you have now strayed into the area of punishing private parties 
without criminal due process. And and by the way, maybe this is how I make my uh, framers uh, point. Under British law, you could do that. Under the British uh, practices for impeachment, private citizens could be impeached and punished pursuant to an impeachment. The framers were quite clear that they were not following that precedent and indeed were not following the state precedents. Let me just read you just one sentence from Federalist 39. This is James Madison. He points out that in Delaware and Virginia, the chief magistrate is not impeachable till out of office, something that uh, Steve and others think possible now. And then Madison goes on, the president of the United States is impeachable at any time during his continuance in office. The framers decidedly rejected the state precedents and the British precedents of trying private parties. So I think it's quite possible you could have an adjudicated case in where you took a, someone who's no longer a civil officer. So I'll, I'll just say, I mean, really briefly, I guess I, I, I concur in the result of Phillips' analysis, but I disagree as to why. Um, I, I don't think this Supreme Court would view anything that happens in an impeachment process as the kind of punishment that triggers the Bill of Attainder Clause. I mean, the, the Supreme Court has taken perhaps an overly narrow definition of punishment for purposes of the Bill of Attainder Clause. It's, uh, it said lots of things are not punishment that I think Philip and I might think are punishment. But on the justiciability point that, you know, that Daniel brought up, I mean, I think here's how I see the, the Walter Nixon case. I think every federal court would read that case as preventing what we might call a direct challenge to the impeachment. So if President Trump were to file a lawsuit trying to enjoin the trial in the Senate, or if we were to file a lawsuit as soon as he's convicted trying to overturn the result, I think federal courts would all point to the Nixon precedent and say, no, we can't handle that. But if the Senate does purport to disqualify Trump from holding future office, I think the place it could come up is if Trump tries to run anyway um, in 2024 and tries to get his name on a ballot in a state, and the state either says yes, and then some other voters sue to challenge it, or the state says no, and Trump sues to challenge it. And I think that lawsuit would not be barred by Nixon itself. It would raise a new question um, about the role of the Supreme Court. But, you know, guys, the larger point here is I don't think we get to court, right, until and unless, one, the Senate convicts, right, and two, the Senate votes to disqualify. If 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 neither if if only one or neither of those things happens, um, this never ends up in court anyway. Why couldn't uh, Trump's lawyers, assuming he can find some, uh, <laughs> his entire legal team quit over the weekend? Although they apparently hired two guys uh, late on Sunday night. Why couldn't they go to court next week? and argue this entire proceeding is unconstitutional on both grounds, that the Constitution doesn't contemplate uh, purely disqualification, and also it's a prospective bill of attainder. Why couldn't they go straight to court next week to forestall the trial? I agree with everything that Steve, Steve said. I think there are two reasons. One, you, you, the case wouldn't be ripe yet if, if uh, the Senate hasn't actually voted to convict and the punishments haven't been levied. And two, I believe that the judicial power of the courts does not extend to an impeachment. If you look in Article 3, where it lays out all the sources of judicial power, you won't see impeachment among them. And, and there's a reason for that, Philip, right? I mean, this is where I would encourage folks to actually read Chief Justice Rehnquist's majority opinion in the Walter Nixon case, because what Rehnquist points out, and he's absolutely right, 
is that historically that one of the one of the most important ways the impeachment power has been a check is it's been a check on the courts, um, right? Where you know the eight officials who have actually been convicted by the Senate were all judges. That's an excellent point. And and what would it mean about the courts if the courts were to assert the power to second guess um, one of the critical checks on the courts? in the constitution, even in a case that's not about a judge. So, you know, I, I just, Michael, I, I don't think the courts are where this ends up one way or the other. I think that's why, you know, and, and, and that cuts both ways. One, it deprives Trump of a forum in which to try to collaterally attack this proceeding. But two, it also deprives anybody else of a forum for challenging those senators who, at least in my view, have wrongly come to the conclusion and in Phillip's view have rightly come to the conclusion that they lack the power to proceed with this trial. Um, I have a technical question. Um, it it is, appears to be settled that it requires 67 votes to convict, two-thirds of the Senate, but only a simple majority uh, for disqualification. Where in the Constitution does it say that? doesn't say that specifically. So in the- why do we assume that it's only 51 votes for disqualification? For the same reason why the president pro tempore is the right person to preside over this trial, right? Because the Constitution creates default rules and articulates the specific cases in which we depart from the default rules. So the chief justice presides when it is the president being tried. That's a departure from the default rule that otherwise it's up to the Senate um, to choose its presiding officer. Um, We use two thirds to convict that's specified in Article One, Section Six, um, right? We specify that because that is a departure from the normal rule that otherwise it's a simple majority vote. And this is not just me speculating. I mean, the Supreme Court made this point quite aggressively in its majority opinion in a case called INS versus Chada in 1983 about when, whether, and when a legislative veto would be constitutional. And what Chief Justice Berger's opinion says is the only times we allow Congress to do things other than through normal majority votes are the times when it's expressly set out that way in the Constitution. So the reason why this is a not a, not a, a two-thirds requirement is because this is not a vote that's set out in the Constitution as such. Can, can we just take this just for a moment out of the realm of uh, constitutional law and, and Senate procedure? I just want to ask a question about uh, justice and accountability. Um, if, uh, you know, uh, Trump uh, did all of these terrible things that led to this insurrection uh, on January 6th, but it's not constitutional to uh, uh, convict him, try and convict him, uh, remove him, disqualify him. Um, and I think we've discussed on this podcast that that a criminal case would be a, a very heavy lift. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff you got to prove here, including intent. And, and then Trump can run again. What are the levers uh, that that we have as a body politic to, you know, to hold him accountable, Philip? I mean, I'm just, you, you know, yeah, because sure. you, I think it's a very important question. The accountability issue also runs through these various uh, uh, petitions and uh, letters. I want to read something that Joseph Story wrote in his commentaries. Uh, He says, if there must be a judgment of removal from office, it would seem to follow that the Constitution contemplated that the party was still in office at the time of impeachment. If he was not, his offense was still liable to be tried and punished in the ordinary tribunals of justice. Now, yes, it may be a heavy lift to try the president for uh, inciting a riot. But 
the president's speech on the uh, on the sixth isn't the only <laughs> isn't the only example of this. This has been a campaign from even before the election that has been, been methodically pressed with conversations to state officials, uh, of, of false statements before courts. This has been a, quite a, a measured full court campaign captained in person by the president. And the second point you make is about elections. All right, suppose he escapes uh, justice before a, a, a jury. Remember, Donald Trump lost the House he single-handedly lost the Senate. He lost the president decisively. Why are we worried about the voters? I would think that removing him from the election so he can say, oh, well, you know, I would have won, but they stole it from me this time by saying I couldn't run, would be handing him the card he would love to play. I say, put it, if he wants to run again, be my guest. Um you're making a uh, persuasive argument there, uh, Phil, and I want to hear Steve's response. Um, but I will say, and just adding to that, uh, a point we've discussed before on Skullduggery, that uh, a Senate trial that does not get the 67 votes is going to lead to a headlines the next day saying Trump acquitted, and that will embolden him and his supporters and make it more likely that he will hang around if not run again. I mean, I guess, I, you know, I, I, I certainly think that's true, but what's the alternative? I mean, I, you know, the I guess where I get stuck is, so the alternative is to just take the, the Ted Cruz approach and just wash our hands of this and move on. I mean, the, you know, the, the Constitution is not meant to be a suicide pact, we're told, right? Um, what are the remedies for a president who in his final days in office commits egregiously inappropriate misconduct, including misconduct that goes toward trying to actually continue his tenure um, and subvert the process by which he was removed from office? And I just think if the answer is um, let the political process deal with him, you know, we've and, and the criminal justice and, and process. Let's try it. Yeah, indicted and tried. Investi but, multiple investigations right, on and, multiple and, fronts. And, and I and I, for one, would love to see those go forward. But guys, I mean, let's be real. So two things here, right? First, obviously, the criminal burdens a lot higher. Um, second, we can imagine other cases where a president commits, you know, patently impeachable offenses in his final days of office that actually are not criminal. They're just conduct completely beneath and below that of a that we expect of a president. What message are we sending to future presidents? What precedent are we setting if if if, if we don't even try to pursue Trump for what happened here? And I guess you know I don't mean this as like a a policy argument in place of a constitutional argument. The point here is that the Constitution contemplates impeachment as the failsafe. Um, and my favorite example of this is an opinion we don't spend enough time teaching in law school. It's an opinion that Chief Justice Taft and former President Taft wrote in 1925 called Ex Parte Grossman, where he was trying to explain why the courts could not review presidential abuses of the pardon power. Um, and Taft's whole point, Taft, who knew of what he spoke, right? Taft's whole point was, if a president commits abuses, right, the remedy is impeachment, um, and that's true. I mean, Taft was not dealing with a president who was committing impeachable offenses in his final days in office. But it's just the notion that a president could escape any consequences from his conduct simply by running out the clock, I think, is one that's not required by the text of the Constitution. And here, for perhaps the first time in our history, 
you know, we have someone for whom some kind of foregoing message is appropriate. And Michael, if, if the if two thirds of the Senate, you know, or doesn't vote to convict, if there really are 40 some odd Republican senators who vote to acquit, you know, let them wear that around their necks when they run for election next time. Um, f- funny you should mention Taft because uh, in preparing for this podcast, I did a little research and dug out my copy of Ron Chernow's uh, biography of Grant in which he has a discussion of the Belknap case, which is probably the one historical precedent that people have talked about the most. Uh, But I came across the fact that I don't know if either of you know who replaced Belknap, who had been the Secretary of War. I do. It's uh, all right. You want to tell us? Alonzo Taft. Alonzo, Alfonso Taft. Alfonso, I'm sorry. See, I, I, I knew I knew it was Taft's father, but I forgot yeah, his name. the father of William uh, Taft. But it, it, just on Belknap for a moment, because that, it, you know, look, you, Steve, believe in a living constitution. Precedents carry a lot of weight. I assume, Phil, you do as well. And it is worth noting that Belknap was acquitted by the Senate in his trial purely for disqualification. And according to Chernow, anyway, many senators believed him guilty and only refused to convict him because he had resigned hours before being impeached, returning him to the status of a private citizen. So um, in terms of precedent, it's not really all that strong for informing how we handle Trump. Well, I think a Belknap, which is heavily relied on, in articles and newspaper uh, editorials is not only an uncertain precedent, which I think you're you're quite right, I think it really cuts the other way. Uh, Let me say why. The Senate took a vote before beginning the trial. 22 senators voted that the Senate had no jurisdiction because Belknap had resigned. That wasn't enough for a majority And so people cite that vote as the precedent. But that was enough to frustrate conviction because conviction requires a two-thirds vote in the Senate. So we know that enough senators voted to acquit on the basis of a lack of jurisdiction alone. Now, I agree with, I think, uh, what everybody else feels, that these uh, 19th century precedents are are sometimes difficult. Political cross-currents are are difficult. Acquittals are usually not precedents because we just don't know the grounds on which the jury acquitted or the judge. But Belknap is decidedly not the infrastructure on which these arguments uh, can plausibly rely. Steve, you disagree. I do, because I think we're conflating two very different things. One is whether the Senate has the power to try such a case. And the other is whether individual senators um, use their constitutional objections as a basis for voting to acquit. Those are distinct inquiries. And so, you know, where Phil Phil focuses on the number of no votes when the Senate voted as to whether it has jurisdiction, I'd, I'd focus on the number of yes votes, 37, that said we do have jurisdiction, right? The Senate as a body concluded that it had the power to try Belknap. The House as a body had concluded that it had the, the power to try Belknap. Can individual senators, Daniel, vote? to acquit the president because they have their own constitutional objections? Yes, I would not argue that that is an invalid vote. I would not argue that that is a you know vote beyond their power. But that's the individual senator's choice. The Senate as a body has reaffirmed its authority to do this at least once and probably twice. I mean, Philip mentioned the, the Belknap case. There's also the Blount case 
um, where, you know, the Senate, the House and the Senate early in their history in the fifth Congress went after Senator Blount, who had been expelled from the Senate for his misconduct, and they impeached him anyway. And the House impeached him after he was expelled. And the Senate proceeded to trial after he'd been expelled. And guys, this is the fifth Congress. These are a bunch of folks who were in the room where it happened, um, right, at Philadelphia. So I just, I, listen, if there were, if it were conclusive in one direction, you know, Philip and I would not be here. I mean, this would be settled. I just think that the precedents are sufficiently supportive of doing this. And the egregiousness of this particular case drives home why that's important, that we should be explaining the value of holding someone like Trump accountable in this context, as opposed to, you know, indulging um, what are, to me, not frivolous, but certainly weaker arguments um, that individual senators can rely upon to acquit. My concern in this context is that this argument, the the constitutional argument against the Senate having the power to do it, it gives Republicans a perfect off-ramp. Because instead of having to choose between voting to convict Trump, thereby condemning his conduct and alienating his base, or acquit Trump, thereby condoning his conduct, right? Republicans now can say, I'm not doing, I have, I have a procedural objection, and therefore wash their hands of taking any position on what happened on January 6th. Although they may have to vote uh, to censure or not censure, because that will come afterwards. I, hopefully, right? But I mean, you know, Daniel. I mean, life, life is long, and I just, I just, you know, I, I, I have all the respect in the world for Philip and for some of the other scholars who are making this argument. I think the critical point is that I don't think the Tom Cottons and the Ted Cruz's of the world are making this argument because they agree with Philip. I think they're making it because it's a convenient off ramp for them to avoid taking a position that could be, in one way or the other, politically damaging. And I think that's an important distinction. Do you worry, Philip, that you're very uh, well thought? out august constitutional arguments are being used for cynical political reasons oh absolutely and, and the article we did in the post was done with uh, richard danzig who as you know was secretary of the navy for president uh, clinton longtime serving democratic uh, party stalwart we <laughs> of course we worry about this but but i think you have to take the long view that you have to turn very strict corners when you're dealing with something as sensitive as impeachment. And that if you adhere to the Constitution as strictly as possible, even if there might be plausible ways you could sort of get around it, if you just take the strictest possible line, you're doing the best thing for the democracy in the long run. And that it would be the triumph of Donald Trump if he will have provoked people like me to sit and say, you know, I'm going to give this a pass because I don't want to oppose my friends so many friends besides Steve uh, who take a different view. I certainly don't want to give the Republicans ammunition to use in the Senate to dodge their, their own accountability, as Steve points out. I, I, I think that's uh, that would be the uh, ultimate achievement of Donald Trump's efforts to undermine constitutional norms. So to wrap up here, I, I'd like to get um, both your views on how you see this going forward. Um, uh, the trial is supposed to take place next week. It seems like uh, the Democrats, because they have so much on their plate that the public probably cares more about at this point, you know, first and foremost, the COVID relief package, that they're going to try to keep this short to less than a week. Um, that's coming on top of an impeachment process that went through in a day or two with no committee hearings, no testimony. How do you see this trial playing out and its aftermath? Um, you first, Steve. 
Well, I mean, I think if nothing dramatic changes between now and when the trial takes place, I think there will be, you know, a heck of a lot of noise surrounding the trial. And I think the result probably is foreordained. I mean, I don't know. I don't know that it will be 45 Republicans who ultimately vote to acquit, but I suspect it will be more than 33. And I suspect there will be a few others who find themselves remarkably unable to attend. Um, right, and therefore don't have to vote one way or the other. Um, and of course, the Constitution says it's two thirds of the members present. So you think some senators may just not show up? No, I, I mean I think I I don't think it'll be high, Michael. But if you know if, if if the if the over under were a half a senator who's not present for the final vote, I, I might take the over. <laughs> um, but but I'll just say I mean I, so if nothing happens between now and the trial, I think yes, that's we're heading toward. Um, an acquittal where there are more votes to convict him than there were this time last year. I mean, where, you know, it's probably 55, 56, 57 votes to convict. Um, the real variable is whether nothing changes between now and when the trial happens. I mean, I think we are still learning more and more about the extent to which the Trump campaign was intimately involved in the planning for what happened on January 6th. Um, you know, I think it's possible as these criminal cases against the rioters go forward, more details might come out that further incriminate at least some close to the president. So I'm just saying, you know, as I want to leave open the possibility that things look even worse for Trump by the time the trial's over. But barring that, I think, you know, an acquittal is, is by far the most likely outcome. I just want to pick up on one point you just made as we learn more, uh, especially about the president's completely bogus claims of election fraud. Couldn't that factor in in terms of the clause of the Constitution that says take care the laws should be faithfully executed when you are actively trying to, um, uh, you know, swing an election in defiance of what the election laws are? It seems to me that could be grounds for impeachment in and of itself. That's not what the House voted, but, you know, uh, I can see that argument um, making it into the trial. Well, and Michael, and, I, and, and what, I, what I found especially interesting in the news that you guys referenced from over the weekend about the president's original trial team um, getting the axe is, you know, the, the reporting that I've seen is that the reason why they parted ways was because the president was, in, President Trump was insisting that they argue that 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 they make the trial a referendum on his election fraud claims, um, which you know I think any lawyer worth their salt would understand is is the worst possible. Is it's just about it's the prescription for a bar complaint if you uh, if you argue exactly. That so and, and indeed would be perhaps the one argument that might actually impel some number of Republican senators to drop their procedural objection. I, I you know I, I don't think that's where this is going to end up, and so that's why I think you know we're probably heading toward an acquittal. Um, in which case, you know, we can save for another time the question of what would happen if you actually did convict a former officer. Um, and, you know, with the acquittal and with the president's departure from office based on his term ending means he'll be entitled to the full benefits of a former president under the former president's act in perpetuity. You know, perhaps even more than what has been historically the pattern since apparently he's ordered Secret Service protection for, for a larger for whole, fam whole family. Right. For more than the statute allows. Can that be done, by the way, without going through the impeachment process? Could Congress just vote to deny him, you know, further benefits, Secret Service protection, a presidential library, all the other accoutrements of being a post-president? So, Michael, all of that is statutory. I think the one place to just to tie this back to something Philip said earlier, you know, there there does come a point where if Congress is is doing that as a form of punishment, it might run afoul of the Bill of Attainder Clause. But if Congress were simply redefining the criteria by which any former president should be entitled to these services, 
Yes, Congress could do that by statute. Will there be any appetite for Congress to do that by statute on the far side of an unsuccessful Senate trial? You know, I, I suspect Congress is going to have other things on its mind, but it's at least something else that we ought to be talking about. Phil, you want to wrap up? Yeah, I, I want to read something I think all of you could probably recite. This is the a, a very affecting scene in A Man for All Seasons when Sir Thomas More, the chancellor, is talking to uh, Roper, his future son-in-law. And the chancellor is the head of the legal establishment in Britain. And Roper is a passionate person at pursuing heretics. And uh, Roper says, so now you give the devil the benefit of law? And Moore says, yes. What would you do? Cut a great road to the law to get after the devil? And Roper says, yes, I'd cut down every law in England to do that. And Moore says, oh, and when the last law was down and the devil turned around on you, where would you hide, Roper? The law's all being flat. This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Yes, I'd give the devil benefit of law for my own safety's sake. I think on that note, I want to uh, thank you both uh, for your insights. Uh, and um, I'm sure we will want to have you both back. Thanks a lot. Thanks, fellas. That's great. Okay. That was great. Take thank care. you, Steve. Great conversation. Yeah, thanks for having us.